Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He koonai pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. It makes me incredibly sad and upset that this wonderful person who was my husband and the father of my children disappeared without a trace. In Jim Donnelly's case, there are more questions than answers and there continues to be more questions than answers. He didn't make a meeting. He just disappeared and then afterwards stuff started appearing of his. There's been no sighting of him apart from inside the mill. There's been no sighting of him leaving. There's been no sighting of him since um, he was seen on the gantry. Jim Donnelly woke up around five o'clock on Monday morning and prepared lunch for himself and his wife Tracy. It was June 21st, 2004. Tracy was still in bed when Jim said goodbye to her and headed to work at the Glenbrook Steel Mill just south of Auckland. An engineer for 19 years at the mill, it wasn't unusual for him to go into work early. He signed into work and changed from his civvies into a high visibility uniform. It's 13 years later and Jim hasn't been seen since that day. His family is still wondering what happened to him where did he go? And why? I'm Paloma Migoni, and this is the third episode of The Lost, a podcast looking into what happened in some of the country's most mysterious missing persons cases and talking to the families about the void left behind. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Come in. Thank you. Tracy still lives in the brick house in Auckland she shared with Jim and their children, Liam and Siobhan. They bought it nearly 18 years ago. She tells me the inside has changed since Jim went missing. The black leather couches, the carpet, they are new. But signs of her husband linger. The hedge he planted still stands tall around the property. I'm greeted by Tracy and her friend Debbie Taylor, whose husband, Stephen, arrived shortly after. You don't sugar, do you? Yes, Sometimes no, I'm not sweet enough. Well, it depends how good you made your coffee. Liam is here too, but stays in his bedroom. His sister, Siobhan, is at university. When I first contacted Tracy some months back, she had reservations about talking to me. What's the point, she asked. It's been over a decade. So far... Nothing she's done has brought him back. Sitting in her living room, she tells me what's changed. I still want to know why I've had to spend the last 13 years and still have no answers. To me, it's completely illogical. You know, I've always been brought up to think that, you know, there's a logical explanation for everything and it, and it all comes out in a matter of all in good time. But nothing's come out. There's been nothing since the day that he went missing. 
there has been no further uh, advancements, there's been no, nothing. And there's always that maybe this time there will be something, you know. I'd like some answers, I'd just like to know why I've had to to live through this and to um, and why my children have had to live without their dad. Stephen met Jim in primary school. He says Jim was one of the few friends he could chat with about physics and maths. I don't think we'll ever find Jim, but uh, I would like to know what happened. Well, somebody does know, and maybe, maybe we'll get that. Jim was born in Auckland on June 7, 1961, and was the youngest of eight siblings. He liked golf and yachting. Tracy describes him as an honest person. He would say what he meant. You knew where you stood with him. Jim was analytical, intelligent, very black and white. He went to work to work and kept to himself. He was a glass-half-empty kind of guy, a dour person. Jim did have a sense of humour, though. Tracy and Jim met in 1986 when Haley's Comet came back to Earth. They were at a party, and Jim made an awkward first impression. Him and his friend were in the hallway, and everybody went outside. And unfortunately, well, he, he knocked me down, so he knocked me off my feet. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> Did you actually fall on the ground? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was wearing an amethyst ring at the time. We didn't know where that went. We were looking for it. Um, he actually went back the next day to the party place and um, found it for me. Oh, that's so lovely. So did he help you out or did he just run out? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, 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 he did. And then we started talking and um, I think that sort of broke the ice. At the end of the evening, he asked for my phone number and um, I didn't have a pen or anything, so I wrote it on his hand in lipstick. (laughs) (laughs) And I went, oh, well, you know, we'll see whether he keeps it or not. (laughs) Smudges it. (laughs) I know, you wouldn't want to wash his hands after that. (laughs) They got married four years later. And again, Jim got one over Tracy on their wedding day, this time over his moustache. Apparently that I was um, under the impression that half of it was gone, so I wasn't very happy, Kim, because, <laughs> you know, it's just like everything was, you know, this was all organised. These days I'd be a bit more chilled out about it. But then I wasn't. In the end, he sent me a bunch of flowers and it said, um, I just had a little mo. <laughs> and I thought I'd send these to you. So then I knew, yeah, he was having me on. But the day itself was just, it was just lovely. It was a whirlwind day. His marriage with Tracy was what you describe as normal and happy. Yes, they had tough days, but who doesn't? Jim's family did have its dose of tragedy, though. Two of his brothers died, and shortly before he went missing, his mother Hazel also fell ill. He didn't change. He was still the same person. You know, he was still Jim. He perhaps became a little more paranoid about things that were happening and I don't I don't know why. Stephen says Jim had become a bit disillusioned with work. His career had stalled and he was looking for new challenges. He had talked about joining the Freemasons, a fraternal organization or brotherhood if you like, famous for its lodges and secret handshakes. It all came to a head the weekend before he was last seen. The couple had planned to spend Saturday night at an Auckland hotel while the two children, then aged five and seven, stayed with their grandparents. But then Jim told Tracy he couldn't go anymore. He had a meeting to go to. A meeting? What meeting? 
on a Saturday? He wouldn't say. Mum and Dad came round and tried to talk to him and find out what it was that this meeting was. He just clammed up. He clammed up like he clammed up after his brother Keith died and wouldn't tell anybody how he was feeling. And Dad said, because he'd sat down with him one time and tried to sort of just get him to open up a bit, and he said, and I can't, he won't say anything, he won't discuss it. And so at one point I did push into going, what's more important, this meeting or us and your children? And he was still adamant he'd go to this meeting. Tell me or move out, Tracy told him. The threat was a ploy for him to open up. He still didn't. He did tell her he would be physically fragile the next day. She didn't push him on that, but her head was spinning with questions. Jim hired a suit and headed out without a word. It's not clear why Jim needed a suit for that night, but staff at the hiring shop said he appeared strange and vague. When he returned home, he had takeaways from Dominion Road. He told Tracy if she knew what was on his mind, she wouldn't be worried. Family would always come first. The takeaway place is not far from where Stephen worked. More about that later. Jim spent Sunday with his son Liam, and then again he needed to head out. This time, to avert a crisis and a waste, he said. Again, Tracy was confused. It was about two or three hours he came back. We got the shopping out of the car and he was um, you know, sort of pacing around a wee bit. Yeah, I got him down the bedroom away from the children and said, what the hell's going on? He goes, oh, you know, well, you know how I've got that problem down at work? And I went, no. He goes, well, I just had to. And I went, no, 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 you didn't go to work. And he's going, oh, no, I didn't. He says, I'm not very good at lying. And I went, no, you're not. He says, oh, I can't, I can't tell you at the moment. I can't tell you anything. The next morning on the Monday, the day Jim disappeared, he woke up at the crack of dawn. He told Tracy about a chess set he had bought Liam for his birthday a couple of months away. He'd sort it out later, he said, and left for work. Tracy called him at work around 8 o'clock before heading into work herself. There was no answer. Even though he was at work to work, we needed to get hold of him. He would ring us back. She had asked for Stephen to call him as well, but he had no luck. He called me concerned about what was happening because he couldn't get hold of Jim either. And then he decided to try and get hold of someone else down there to find out where Jim was. Stephen found out Jim had missed a 9 o'clock meeting at work and his colleagues thought he was off sick. So he headed to Jim's house looking for him. No one was home. That afternoon, a worker at the mill found Jim's car in the car park. It appeared he had never left work. I was thinking, oh my God, what's happened to him at work? Has he fallen over somewhere? Is he? That, that was the first thing that came to mind, is that something untoward in, in that instance. You know, he just had an accident or something, and where was he? About six o'clock that evening, Tracy reported Jim missing. When search and rescue arrived at the mill, the theory of what happened to Jim shifted. He wasn't lying injured somewhere. The theory was that he was running. He was paranoid. He was having a nervous breakdown. The wife of an Auckland mill worker who has disappeared in mysterious circumstances has made a public plea for him to return home to his two children.
The police told Tracy Jim might be on the ground surrounding the mill, actively trying to evade search and rescue teams. On Wednesday, a contractor saw a man in mill uniform running away as searches combed the nearby farmland. Could it be him? The family put messages for Jim from the children up around the mill, hoping he would read them and maybe stop running. Mrs Donnelly was teary-eyed as she made this appeal to him. Come home. Um, we all miss you. We all love you. Um, and we just, we're waiting. The police officer overseeing the search at the time, John Yearbury, asked residents in the area for help. Any locals in the area that have any sheds that might be broken into? It's been quite cold at night, so he'll need shelter and or food. So we're hoping that um, any sightings or any unusual activity in the area will be reported to us. The land surrounding the mill and nearby farmland was searched. The police found shoe prints near the southern boundary where they climbed on a bank and disappeared into grass near oxidation ponds. But Tracy says mill workers who were searching for him were wearing the same type of boots. Tracy wore one of his jumpers while searching for him one of those days, so he'd be able to recognize her. Food bags were hung around the place in case he was hungry. Nothing was touched. And then we're going, oh, maybe he's just too paranoid to even touch it. Yeah, I was sort of thinking, well, why is he out there? It was really odd at the time, but because I was so upset, just going, OK, I just went along with what was happening. It didn't make a, a lot of sense, but I was talking to the search and rescue people, they profiled him, and we discussed the weekend, and we sort of you know, discussed everything, and they said their ideas at that point was he wasn't suicidal. You know, anything, he'd had a breakdown. Five days later, on Saturday, June 26th, they found something. It was a yellow protective hat with Jim's name on it, next to an acid tank in a restricted area of the mill. The tank was drained. His glasses, money, credit cards, a library card were found inside. His keys have never been found. But before we get too caught up in the vat, there's one important thing to know. The acid wasn't strong enough to do significant damage to his things or to a human body. This was strange, though. That area had been searched already. Had the hat been missed? Or had someone recently put it there? Was it Jim? Or someone else? It was just too unreal. You know, it was just like something out of a movie. And I just couldn't get my head around that. I couldn't get my head around a lot of things at that time. So it was sort of after that that then I let the children know that um, that we'd lost Dad. We didn't know where Daddy was. And, you know, it was sort of like oh, I've got to tell him that um, you know, sort of like just destroy their worlds. Daughter didn't really comprehend it, but yeah, Liam got very upset. It was yeah, it was hard. To my daddy, wherever you are, we miss you lots and lots. It's nearly Father's Day. Can you come home, please? When Father's Day arrived, the then eight-year-old Liam wrote how he felt in a poem for his dad. Here it is, voiced by an actor. I will try not to be too disappointed if you don't, but I'll wait all day. 
Me and my sister will bake you afghans with chocolate icing. My sister is really hoping you come back soon, as mummy doesn't know how to make pancakes like you. I have your photo on my wall. You know the one. My tummy gets sore if I think too much. I'm sad when I look at it. Mummy says that's okay. She is sad too. We keep sending you lots of tricky hugs and kisses to you and hope they have found you. I love you, Dad. A timeline of Jim's last whereabouts was put together following interviews with some of his colleagues. Some described his behaviour as strange. This is what we know. Jim was seen in the locker room about 6 o'clock at the mill that Monday morning. His colleague told police he had kept his back to him, like trying to avoid looking him in the face. 15 to 20 minutes later, he was then spotted heading up some stairs. The shift supervisor said good morning to him, but did not get a reply. The supervisor says Jim looked as if he was frozen on the spot. He was then seen in a nearby area, stopping and turning. It looked like he was trying to make up his mind on where to go. And about half past eight, another worker told police he saw Jim in the distance, wearing an orange fleece jacket, yellow hard hat and glasses. But Tracy doesn't believe this was in fact him. He didn't own a fleece jacket, she says. Then the trail goes cold. Remember the man seen running across the field near the mill? Turns out it wasn't Jim. That man came forward years later and identified himself. Tracy believes that whatever happened to Jim, it happened between half past six and half past eight in the morning. I used to have nightmares about um, Jim falling off things and trying to grab onto, you know, sort of uh, on the gantry they've got... um, bars and stuff, you know, sort of maybe falling off there and holding that and, you know, obviously the hot metals and everything like that, that'll appear in my dreams at particular times. The search for Jim continued for weeks. There was no sight of him. On October 27, his employment with the Glenbrook Steel Mill ended. Tracy and her family aren't particularly happy with how the police investigation was carried out at the beginning. Looking back on hindsight, I think probably there needed to be more investigation done within the mill um, where he was last seen and with the staff. Um, They requested the staff, if they had anything to say, that they would interview them. It wasn't, um, we're interviewed, it was on a totally voluntary basis. So if you had anything to do with it, then why would you? I'm at the Glenbrook steel mill where Jim was last seen. I asked if I can go inside to see where he worked, where he was last spotted, but was denied access. So I'm standing on the other side of the fence, surrounded by trees looking in. I can see concrete buildings, chimneys, and plumes of smoke filling the air. You can hear buzzing, with people working, trucks moving, and to the right-hand side, train tracks, with trains standing still. Tracy tells me she looked into hiring a private investigator to go into the mill about one year after Jim disappeared, but the mill said no. She wonders why the mill wouldn't do everything possible to find Jim. Tracy feels they have been less than cooperative. 
I asked New Zealand Steel, the owner of the mill, if anyone there would talk to me about how the company helped with a search in the past. Was it still willing to help? I was turned down, but in a statement, a spokeswoman said at the time of Jim's disappearance, New Zealand Steel did everything possible to help the police find Jim. So I started calling Jim's old workmates. Hello? Hi, is this Mark? This yes. is Mark Olson. He was a production supervisor New for New Zealand Steel at the time. He's since retired. I'm just doing a story on Jim Donnelly. What do you remember of, of Jim exactly? Uh, he was a production engineer in the area I worked in, the, the cold foot mill. He was, you know, normal sort of guy, pretty conscientious event. Um, do you remember the day he disappeared? Well, actually, I was, uh, I was on shift at the time, and it was after that afternoon that I came into work and we did a search, you know, throughout the, the plant and that. Probably 25 people in the plant run sort of check the areas and that. It wasn't a continuous search, but, I mean, it was a thorough search. You know, I was searching the area, yeah. You know, how could someone go missing in a place like that, you know? Do you think the mill did enough to find him? Oh, yes, yes. It, like I say, we searched everywhere, you know. As far as we, you know, we possibly could within the plant boundaries and searched another plant as well. Mr Olson was actually the person who found Jim's things in the acid tank five days after he disappeared. He talks me through this discovery. We were looking, you know, around the plant. First of all, we found a helmet up on the on top of the pickle line. So then we started checking the acid tanks and that, and we found part of his jacket in the tank. That's when we drained the acid tank and we found contents of his wallet. The, you know, the pump filter. What were people saying? Well, I just said, you know, it was just sort of, someone must have thrown it in there. An individual couldn't get in there. There's no opening to get in there. It was, oh, it gets a lot of speculation about why why his gear had been, you know, up there and why parts of it ended up in the tank. What were people thinking had happened? I guess probably the consensus was he'd, you know, walked out of the place. I don't think, uh, as far as people working at the plant, no one considered there was foul play in there. He thinks Jim just walked away. He tells me trains leave for the Mount Wanganui port every day. That's his theory. That's what he would do to get out of the country. I ask him about the family wanting a private investigator to be given access to the mill. He doesn't think that would be a good idea. You can't allow someone who, in a place like that who doesn't know the area, you know. They're never going to know where the um, places are that, you know, a person perhaps could go missing. I don't think it would serve a purpose. Graham Porter, an engineer at the mill, also worked with Jim. He describes the eerie experience of when Jim went missing. It was a little bit strange because you know, we thought it was unusual of Jim to, to, to just disappear. And then we thought, well, perhaps he has got other things on his mind, because you know, he was a sort of you know, private sort of a person with his own personal life. As, as the day got on, we started realising, well, hell, you know, he, no one has seen him, and you know, we, don't, we don't know what the, what the heck was going on. Were people taking it seriously? I oh, know management, management was. Management was definitely taking it seriously. Some of the guys on the floor just thought it was a bit of a joke to start with, but then as, as the day went on, you know, they sort of realised it's, it's not a joke at all. OK, so let's step back here for a moment. What happened to Jim? The police investigation looked at whether it was an accident, a suicide, a staged disappearance or foul play. I've been in the New Zealand Police 28 and a half years. This is David Glossop. He's the area commander of County's Manukau's West Area. He investigated Jim's case in 2008. He wasn't part of the search team in the early days, but is the go-to person on this case. 
every other investigation into missing persons or into homicide, you can anchor yourself around some facts. In Jim Donnelly's case, there are more questions than answers, and there continues to be more questions than answers. Everything's possible in this life. Um, you know, there those four scenarios, that, it, that there was an accident, uh, that there's some sort of suicide, that um, deliberately gone missing, you know, started the whole new life thing, or that uh, there's been foul play. Uh, each and every one of those is still an option. The four scenarios he mentioned were outlined during the coroner's inquest in 2007. Let's go through them. Okay, so firstly, did Jim have an accident? Well, the mill is a workplace with risks and hazards, but the police evidence said it seemed unlikely that Jim had an accident. And if he did, surely his body would have been found. Theory two, could Jim have staged his own disappearance? The police found no evidence to suggest that Jim was in any serious financial stress or had significant health problems, or that he had obvious means to support himself to live or to start a new life somewhere else. The investigation also didn't find any financial transactions or evidence that he had left New Zealand. And Tracy says he would have made contact with his children. Someone tried to break into the family house, though, on the week Jim went missing. Could it have been him? Tracy doesn't think so. Remember, his house keys were never found. If he had them on him, why wouldn't he use them to get into the house? She also says the house had been broken into twice before. Okay, so what about suicide? The police didn't think suicide was an option at first. But by the time the coroner's inquest came around, they began leaning towards this possibility. Because of his unusual behaviour in the lead-up to his disappearance, his behaviour over his last weekend at home, and during that Monday at work. Tracy remembers the first time she heard police consider this possibility. It was former high-profile detective Neil Grimstone who brought it up. He has since retired from the police. And I said to him, I wouldn't accept that. There's no facts for that. And they kept telling us, no, we can't do this, we can't do that, because we've got no facts, we've got nothing to base it on. Yet he did tell me that. And the fact that I got upset, he didn't think that, that I was being reasonable. And I said, well, where's the body? Where's the evidence? Where's the facts? We didn't see eye to eye. So what about foul play? Remember Jim's hard hat and things, which were found days after an area of the mill had been searched? Who put it there? The police said it could have been Jim, who could have been evading them. He worked at the mill for years. He knew the nooks and crannies of the place. He knew where to hide. But then again, maybe someone put it there. And if they did, was it a joke? Was it to mislead police? Or were they involved in Jim's disappearance somehow? The hard hat was never tested for fingerprints. Also, remember we discussed Jim going out on the Saturday and Sunday evenings before he went missing. He had been on Dominion Road on Saturday. Turns out he had gone to Stephen's work on Dominion Road on the Sunday too. But Stephen wasn't there. He was asked to leave by caretakers, who eventually called security. He was issued a trespass notice. Media reports at the time say Jim told the caretaker he had come to help his friend clear a debt and seemed quite frightened. 
What was he doing there? Had he been in the area meeting someone else? Stephen doesn't know why Jim went to his work. It was unusual. Could Jim have had something else going on in his life that Tracy was unaware of? The police say there is nothing to indicate he was involved with any criminal group. The police looked at four scenarios. Tracy believes in one. I think that something happened. I don't think it was premeditated. I could be wrong, but it, to me, it's, it's something not premeditated. Accidental, that someone's covered up, they've gone, oh shit, what have I done? It's simply because the stuff turned up back up in the mill five days after he went missing. If he'd gone missing and he just decided to take off, there'd be nothing. He'd, he'd taken off on that day. But he went to work and got changed out of his civvies into his bright-coloured orange shirt and bright blue trousers. If you were going to go and disappear, would you have got changed? And that doesn't make any sense. His friend Stephen thinks it's foul play. He disappeared early in the morning. He didn't make a meeting, which he gets to. He didn't return a phone call from me, which he does promptly, always. And he just disappeared, and then afterwards, stuff started appearing of his. There's no way that stuff would have been there at the time of his disappearance. So somebody else has planted it there. As I mentioned earlier, Tracy thinks the police investigation could have been more thorough. The police should have had free reign of the mill. They were escorted by a mill employee, she says. They should have interviewed everyone who worked there. Tracy believes the answer to Jim's disappearance is in the mill. The place he was last seen alive. Someone knows something. But Mr. Glossop tells me the search for Jim was thorough and he wouldn't have done anything differently. I sympathise with why they feel that way. To be completely honest, I still don't think that we would do things different if we were given the same set of circumstances now. No police force is equipped to deal with every missing person complaint that comes in as a homicide investigation. Once the CIBE became involved, things were dealt with with a, an eye towards that. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, but I have no criticism at all. He says the mill was well searched at the time, and search and rescue looked through the nearby areas, including wasteland and farmland. The army was even called in. And when Mr. Glossop took over the case, he carried out another search. The idea was to recover human remains. But the police didn't search in the mill. Our reviewers, there was no reason to search the mill itself again. Every square foot of the mill had been... People had been working in it or it had been revamped or maintenance had occurred. So uh, there was no point in searching the mill itself again because uh, any human remains would have already been recovered. We were checking like tree lines and culverts and uh, anywhere where people wouldn't normally be walking to try and see if we could find any remains. The conclusion of those two days, I believed and still do believe we've done everything we can. Nothing's beyond the realms of possibility. And how far do you keep going? You know, there's a lot of land. But I think that we've searched as well as we're ever going to search. The mill also was close to the sea, which had an outgoing tide. If Jim had gone into the water, he probably would never be found. Mr. Glossop also noted nearby oxidation ponds full of sewage where people sometimes throw sheep carcasses. They hadn't been searched. 
I actually visited the place and looked at what the possibilities were of searching that. It's not the kind of thing that you can put a diver into or any of that sort of thing. When, when we were talking with the scientists about that because of the duration of time, obviously such a, um, uh, an environment's quite corrosive and uh, anything that would have gone into there would have been dissolved by now anyway. Mr Glossop says he's still determined to solve the case. I think the only two remote possibilities of solving this going forward uh, will be if through one way or another Jim's remains are found one day or that allegiances and alliances will change out there. If somebody does know something, they may have motivations to keep quiet about it now, but those circumstances always change. In August 2007, a coroner declared Jim dead. He died on or after June 21, 2004, age 43, presumably in or around Wayugu. The cause? Unknown. We put this box together and they decorated it. Um, I helped them. It's got Father's Day's cards over the years as well with uh, Liam doing them at school. The box was put together by the children, then age five and eight, on the first Father's Day after Jim had gone missing. The family still didn't know whether he'd turn up or not. On the cover, there are drawings of Jim with his moustache and the borders are decorated with multicolored triangles. It has the words Jim and Dad written on it. Tracy opens it and begins showing me cards the children made for him over the years. And then those are the presents. Um, it looks like yeah. a mug. Those were bought, you know, the first Father's Day um, after he went missing. So if he came back, we had something for him. I asked Tracy about what comes to mind when she thinks of Jim. With the children, just with Liam and when he was born and him going back to the um, hospital and spending the night, I didn't know. I was upstairs because um, it was a caesarean and um, he wasn't well, so he was in um, Skibu. He drove home and then he decided no and he went back to the hospital and he spent the night with, with his son. That was who he was. It took Tracy a year to clear his clothes from their home and several more years to reach some sort of normality. Tracy, Liam and Siobhan continued to mark Jim's birthday with dinner or movie. A funny movie, she tells me. Nothing too serious. The children still struggle. There was a long time there that I thought I was fine, but I wasn't. It's the most horrific thing. It is awful. I, I did grief counselling with the children in the beginning and that was good for all of us. I know I started off in a mess as it progressed through this grief counselling. I was better at the end of it, but it, you know, it took 10 years to say, right, OK, um, actually I do need to move on. I need to accept that maybe I won't get answers to this and I have to put it, you know, just in a box and, you know, and to live. Tracy and the family decided not to have a memorial ceremony for Jim. She doesn't like funerals. It wouldn't matter anyway, she says. Jim is gone. She tells me how she stays awake and bad late at night, thinking of all the wonderful ways to sort it all out. But nothing is what it used to be. Tracy didn't get a chance to say goodbye to Jim. He just disappeared. He just 
was no longer there. But Liam and Siobhan wanted to mark his life. They needed something more. On Jim's mother's grave at the Purewa Cemetery in Auckland is Jim Donnelly's name, born in 1961. The date of his death is left open-ended. This podcast has been created and hosted by me, Paloma Migoni. Technical production by Phil Benj. The executive producer is Tim Morkin. And the voice actor is Riley Cohen. Thank you to Nataonga Sound and Vision for the archive audio. You can see video and photos by Rebecca Parsons-King at rnz.co.nz, which drill into some of the issues raised in this podcast. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to The Lost on iTunes, Spotify, our website, or wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, please don't forget to review and rate us so others can find this series. Thank you for listening. And next week, we look into the story of Jeffrey Hill, a two-year-old who went missing in Tokoroa 49 years ago. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.